get to scripture in a second. Um, I'd love to just read it right in the middle of this because I, I think it'll make more sense with some context. Um, but I, I want to begin with a story of my seventh grade science teacher's father. Uh, my seventh grade science teacher once told our class this story about uh, the day his father went to the doctor to do a checkup. And uh, the doctor sat him down and said, you know, George, I, I think was his name, said, you know, George, you're, you're pretty much fine, but I've been telling you for years, you got to give up those cigarettes. You got to quit smoking. And uh, he, he told George, I think George was around like 50 at the time, maybe, he said, look, you know, you've, if you were to quit right now, you would have little to no consequences for all the smoking you've done. You might have a few things here and there, but you, I don't know if you'd notice it, and you could still have sort of abundant life. But if you keep going, it's pretty uncertain, the doctor said. You know, you might have seven to ten good years of life left, maybe. And so my uh, science teacher's father came home that day and uh, I guess gathered the family around the table and told them what the doctor had said, like, hey, I've, I, ha I have to quit. And he was asking the family for help. Would you be with me in this? Would you support me? Would you surround me with your love and with your prayers? Because it's going to be a tough journey. You know, George, I guess, had been smoking since he was like 16 or something. And so it was, it was a long time that he had, he had been using tobacco. And um, this was something George wanted to do. He really, really wanted to quit. And so he tells his family this story and invites them to help him on this journey. And then the way my science teacher tells it, <laughs> He just left. He just he walked out of the house and no one knew where he went. And apparently he went to find like every cigarette that he had stored all over the garage, all over the house. He just went and he found all of these cigarettes. And my science teacher says that he went outside that day and he just started smoking one after another, after another, after another. And my science teacher joked and said he must have smoked a thousand cigarettes that night, <laughs> the day that he had left to quit. And he smoked and he smoked and he smoked and he smoked actually until he made himself really, really sick. And then he came inside and he laid down and he fell asleep. You know, we've been conditioned in our culture to really care about bodies, sometimes in good ways, I think sometimes in really unhealthy ways. You know, this, this country has a habit of policing bodies in really negative, harmful ways. Uh, we, we're very body conscious in this culture, and we're conditioned to be so. And, and we think a lot about what foods do we eat, what things do we drink, what, you know, things do we do. We're, we're sort of obsessed with what goes into the body in some ways. And again, I, I think some of that is helpful. I think some of that is sometimes harmful and destructive as well. But I don't think there's any question that we're obsessed with bodies. One of the things I think we neglect often is, you know, we're so concerned about what goes into the body, what we're putting in, what we're eating, all of these things, how we look, that we don't often pay attention to What's coming out? The way Jesus would, would say it is what proceeds from the mouth? What's going on in the heart? And what do you see coming forth from your soul? And I think it's worth us sort of examining that. 
I think it's worth thinking about, you know. What is coming out of us? What habits do we have? What do we do over and over that we don't even really think about? I was talking to someone before the service, and they came up to me to hand me the Bible that I was using at, um, at our Bible study, and uh, they said, here you go, I'm assuming you're going to need this, and I thought, no, I, actually, I, I keep Bibles laying all around this church so that I don't have to keep one in mind, <laughs> and I thought, I don't think I've ever shared that with anybody. <laughs> Why do I do that? You know, and that, that's, a, that's a silly example, but what, what are these things we do over and over and over, and where is that coming from in our heart? And so I, wanted, I want us to take a look at that, and I think Jesus is sort of speaking to that. To set the scripture up before we read it, um, if you weren't here the, the last couple weeks, we've been here in Matthew chapter 5, and it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's like a three to four chapter sermon that has taken us now, what, four weeks? To, and we're not even going to get through all of it, and so uh, count yourselves lucky that um, we're not spending all the time on it. But, you know, Jesus is uh, delivering this Sermon on the Mount to a group of people that we said um, are desperate. They're desperate. They want something from him. And if you remember at the beginning of, of chapter 5, it says that Jesus is looking at the crowds, right? And I, I think he's a little tired. I think he's sort of sick of people following him around. He's sick of people wanting things from him. But he looks around at the crowd and, and says once he sees the crowd, he turns around <laughs> and he goes the other way and he starts to hike. And he hikes up this mountain, and when he gets to the top of the mountain, it says he, he stands, and then he turns again, and he sees the crowd, and he notices that they're coming toward him. They're hiking up the mountain. That's how desperate they are to get this word. It could also be, someone mentioned this in our Bible study this morning, it could also be how righteous they think they are, too. There might be some nefarious sort of motivations going on there. But either way, they have something driving them to follow Jesus all the way to the top of this mountain, and he sits down. And once they've all come to him, then he begins to teach. And he starts with the Beatitudes, and to just offer a brief recap of where we went in that sermon. You know, I think we sort of landed on Jesus is, is trying to get their minds primed for the sermon that's going to be preached. And the sermon that, that he's, he's really preaching is, is trying to look for the blessings of God, trying to find God where you would never, ever expect God to be. And then last week, Pastor Sarah talked about, I'm, I'm assuming salt and light, and, and I think one of the things that Jesus is saying there is that these people are valuable beyond their wildest imaginations. You know, salt and light were very, very valuable during these times. And to call these people valuable, uh, I think, was actually kind of scandalous, and I'll, I'll comment on that in a minute. And then he moves to this passage of scripture that we have for today. And this is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. And Jesus said, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court." But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go 
into the fiery place. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you're with him on the way to court so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will not be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at someone with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into the fiery place. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into the fiery place. Now, it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it's the throne of God, nor by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. But make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. Whew. Anyone else have trouble with that scripture? There's a few brave ones there. Yeah. No, hey, it's, it's tricky. And I'll just tell you, growing up in the evangelical church, like this text was sort of like weaponized against people and uh, made to uh, primarily communicate shame, not the love of God. And, there, you know, there's been a lot of uh, scholarly research on this passage, and it it, it likely could be redacted, <laughs> sort of added in after the fact. Um, and, and so there, there, there's some trickiness to it, but it, in the hope of somewhat redeeming it, I want to give it another look. And I'm not going to comment line by line on all of that. It's a lot of passage to get through, but if you want to sit down and parse through some of this and ask questions together and be curious, I'm, I'm here for it. And I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers on it, but I, but I will remain curious and engage with the text. I think what Jesus is asking, most of all in this stretch of text, and this is a huge paraphrase, I think he's asking us to examine our hearts. I think he's asking the individuals that have gathered with him, those desperate folks that are up there on top of the mountain, I think he's asking them, you know, if you want to live, if you're seeking life, if you're truly hungry for what it is they think Jesus has to offer, he's saying you need to pay attention to your heart. 
And I think that's because Jesus is sort of acknowledging that the things that are going on in our heart are the things that are creating the reality around us. You don't just murder to murder. I mean, maybe some people do. I'm, I'm, I don't want to make a blanket statement like that. But the murder, Jesus says, begins with hate. And hate begins in the heart. Adultery doesn't just sort of happen, right? It begins with a kind of lust in the heart. These sins don't just occur. They percolate and they boil over in the heart until they're made manifest in the world around us. And for so long, the, the religion that a lot of these folks are inheriting, um, it, it's, it's only taught <laughs> that it, you just need to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And that doesn't seem to be working for those people that have climbed all the way up that mountain. They're looking for something else. It also doesn't help that, you know, to borrow from Howard Thurman, that the people that are gathered there are likely exactly like Jesus. They are poor, they are marginalized, and they are Jewish. And what Howard Thurman means by that and what that means for the text is that they are impoverished to the point that they don't have the resources to live the way they need to live. So they begin as desperate. They wake up in the morning desperate. They're marginalized in the sense that the people that are in power, the empire that has invaded the world, those people don't look like them. And they're not included in that government. And they're not included in a decision-making process. In fact, they're not even valued. This is where Jesus saying your salt and light is really, really powerful, I think. They're not even valued. In fact, they're probably considered a burden and a nuisance and only good for making a little bit of tax revenue. And Jesus says, you're salt and you're light. And they're Jewish. And to be Jewish at this time means that you can't even go worship in your temple without the surveillance of Rome. You can't have proper function in the temple. You can't worship. You can't be with your people. You can't even be in your community without the Roman Empire sort of looking over your shoulder and watching everything you do to make sure that you don't do anything disorderly. That's who these people are. And Jesus is still saying to them, despite those circumstances, despite everything going on around them, he's saying to them, look for the blessing where you least expect it. Look for God where you least expect God. You are more valuable than you will ever, ever realize. And he's saying to examine your heart. Pay attention to what's going on inside of you because those things are going to come out of you eventually and they're going to start to create the world that you interact with. And so I think he's just telling them, be mindful. He's also sort of undoing all of the Ten Commandments, but that's, that's a separate sermon that, you know, I was going to try to preach, but I, I don't even think I understand it yet. So there's something going on religiously here, but I think, too, he's pointing to the heart. But he's not just pointing to those negative things. I think there's an invitation baked in here over and over and over. You notice in that example, if you're going down to worship... <laughs> and you remember suddenly that you've got this beef with your brother or sister and, and you haven't resolved it and it's just sort of weighing on your heart and you're getting ready to go worship or make a sacrifice, Jesus says, just stop. Just drop everything you're doing right there and turn around and go the other way and reconcile yourself to your brother because the people 
around you, your relationships, your brothers and sisters, that's all you have, really. Especially for these folks where they're living at the time. Examine that invitation to reconnect, to love one another, to be reconciled, to restore those relationships. Because that's the thing that's going to give you life. That's the thing that's going to sustain you. That thing that you hiked up this mountain <laughs> to hear me say that it's actually resting in your heart. And again, we see Jesus sort of pointing away from himself, not as this great God to be worshipped, but as someone that's reflecting and mirroring everything that's happening around us. I think in this country, you know, we, we have a hard time doing deep examinations, really deep examinations of the heart. Like, as a country, like, we're, y'all, we're still having trouble, at least I, I've noticed on news sites that I frequent, <laughs> on social media, like, we're still having trouble admitting that we got a problem with racism in this country, you know? We don't want to do that deep dive on our hearts collectively. We have a hard time admitting that it's quite literally like written into the Constitution, it's spelled out. Some people are more valuable than, than others, and we, we don't want to reckon with that. We don't want to examine that. And I get it. You know, th those things are hard, but I, I, I think one of the things Jesus is trying to say is you, you have to examine those things because they exist. Whether you pretend they're there or not, they're, they're, it's there. So we, we have to reckon with that. We have to wrestle with it. We also have to wrestle with the other side of things, too. We've got to find within ourselves what gives us life as well. What energizes? What animates us? What's the thing that we can't not do? Where is the joy existing? And if we can sort of parse through those together, restore relationships and find life, Jesus is sort of saying to us that, that, that it just begins to grow and life and life to the full comes to us. I think we as a church need to think hard about this as well in our own hearts. We need to ask where we're at. What do we want? What makes us get out of bed? What's our mission? What is our thing? But we also need to ask ourselves too, what's going on in those darker parts? What's going on in those parts that we don't really want to talk about? You know, every church is like this, but there are conflicts when you've been in relationship with people over there. Conflict's just part of the game. It's, it's part of human relationship, you know, and so there are conflicts that boil up in churches. There are um, hurts that happen in community. These things pop up, and sometimes we do a really good job of just pushing those away, sweeping them under the rug, putting them back in the closet where no one will see them. But I think Jesus is asking us to engage with those and to sort of look at our heart, parse through the things that are sort of dealing death in some ways, and then parse through the things, too, that are delivering life in this sort of abundant life that Jesus wants to offer. 
and then take a really honest look and say what needs to go and what needs to stay and how can I step faithfully forward intentionally choosing life over and over and over, even when it's really, really hard. And, and sometimes it is really hard. We all need to do this, and I, I'm including myself in that as individuals, as a church, and as a nation. And I really hope we will. You know, to, to echo um, Jesus, and Jesus, I think, is echoing Moses in Deuteronomy as the Israelites, they're about to take the promise, they're about to go into the promised land, and, and Moses knows that he's not going to make it. He knows he's not going to make it. And so uh, he, he says to the people, though, he gives this one last sermon, and he essentially says, and this is where I took the sermon title from, he says, look, guys, turn back to God and choose life so that you and your children may live. And I think this is what Jesus wants to offer us today. My seventh grade teacher told us that his father fell asleep that night and didn't wake up for like two days. And when he did wake up, he was like so sick he couldn't get out of bed because he had, you know, smoked about a thousand cigarettes. And after that, you know, he said he didn't smoke another cigarette, but he would go outside during the times he would normally smoke, and he would take his normal smoke breaks, and he would just cough. He would cough, and he would cough, and he would cough, and he would, he would get sick sometimes, and it said, you know, my, my science teacher said it took him about seven to ten years before he started to get really healthy. And you could see sort of his face change, and he became almost a totally different person and at the time he was telling it, you know, he sort of ended with, and he's still alive. And he knows my kids. And they're getting to know him, and, and he's teaching them so many great things about who they are and about who he is, and they are going to be better for it. And I just love that story. Not because someone kicked their addiction, though that is part of it, but because the blessing of my science teacher's father's life wasn't just about him continuing to live until he was really, really old. The blessing was he got to experience those relationships with children and grandchildren and colleagues and friends for the rest of his days. So my hope for you this week is that you would ask, what's going on in my heart? What's coming out of me? And my hope, too, is that you would choose life intentionally, over and over so that you can live. Amen.